0: Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Rhea Wong. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, my guest is my very good friend, Marvin K. Vilma, who is currently the annual giving officer at MIT Sloan School of Management, but we have a much longer history, do we not, Marvin?
1: We do. A great history of that, too.
0: A very great history. So Marvin, I hope I don't embarrass you, but we hired Marvin as an intern and teaching fellow back in his undergrad days. And I have to say, I've been a fan of Marvin since day one. We saw that talent early on. excited today to talk about your career, both because you started in education and now you're in fundraising, which we all know is near and dear to my heart. Yeah. Marvin, tell me a little bit about yourself and your start and where you are today.
1: Absolutely. And first, I should just start by saying thank you to you for inviting me to be a part of your series. an immense privilege to be a part of this conversation and share my story with folks who are in our shared space. And also just wanted to acknowledge all the fundraisers who have come before me and who have really paved the way for the career that I'm pursuing right now. I could not have done it without a lot of people in my life and a lot of support and network. And so it's important that I pay tribute to those folks as well.
0: Can I just pause there? That is why you're an yeah. awesome fundraiser. The gratitude and the grace, <laughs> I'm telling you, is all a foundation. But I'm sorry, please continue. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: No, no, no problem at all. So my story, actually, you are part of this story. And so I'm excited to share this story because you are an important part of the story. Philanthropy has always been a part of my life. I grew up in a Black church. And so tithing, philanthropy has been something that I have thought about since I was very young but I never called it philanthropy at that time because it was just giving 10% of whatever you had to the church. My dad was the accountant for the church and so I had sort of close proximity to the ways in which philanthropy was being used because he would distribute funds for different departments, different activities that the church was facilitating. But it wasn't until college, I would say, where philanthropy, fundraising, really began to become part of my vocabulary and language And it started off with Breakthrough New York. And I don't know if you remember this, but I think it was either my first year or my second year teaching with Breakthrough where you invited me and a few other teachers to an event in Long Island to communicate with a few donors. And that was the first time where I saw fundraising in action because I saw you working in the room and I think Natalie may have been there as well and just seeing your interactions with donors and how you asked us to tell our stories and really sort of paint a vision for the work that Breakthrough New York was doing was my first entry point into fundraising as a career possibility and as an industry. So segue into further sort of experiences, I jumped into special events because of that event. And so I got an internship at Colgate working for the special events team because I said, wow, like these events seem really cool where you can meet donors and tell them about your story and do lots of cool things. And so special events was my foray into this career. I was planning large events where we brought in Hillary Clinton, we brought in ambassadors. And being a part of that team, part of that process of cultivating donors by creating these experiences for them was really awesome for me as a first sort of internship opportunity at Colgate. But frontline work was very foreign to me at the time. I thought special events would be my thing because I love logistics, I love making plans, I love seating charts and all that other stuff. But frontline just seems really hard. Making an ask seems really weird. Why would I want to talk to this person about their personal finance and their money? But on my journey, I realized that frontline work is incredibly important and it's a skill that any nonprofit leader needs to have. Despite the fact that every nonprofit leader seems to be scared of fundraising, It's an important skill that everyone needs to have, and so I said to myself, there's no better time or place to learn that skill than at MIT, which is where I was working at the time. I was in programming, but an opportunity came up in fundraising that sort of aligned with my interest, and I said, as a future and aspiring ED, Executive Director, I need to learn how to do this now, and let me hop on this train while it's going full speed.
0: Okay, first of all, Marvin, I am so touched that you credit me (laughs) with your fundraising career. That really means a lot to me and I do remember that and I'm so glad that was a positive experience and you took away something valuable from that. As you know, I am passionate about teaching people how to fundraise because I think to your point, a lot of people are really afraid of it. So tell me a little bit about the mind shift that you felt like you had to make along your journey because I know, every fundraiser I've ever talked to has had a come-to-Jesus moment around their own baggage about money.
1: Yeah, I think I still have baggage about money. So it's a never-ending journey. But I think one of the important things that I had to come to terms with very early is that fundraising is not selling something. And it's a distinction that I didn't make before, but quickly learned under sort of the right mentorship and tutelage of folks. Uh, I actually did a program called uh, Plus Delta it was with an organization called Plus Delta Partners. And they did a fantastic training for new fundraisers. And they really advise us to think about ourselves as philanthropic advisors. And so I quickly transitioned from this selling mindset to a diplomacy and negotiation mindset and approached conversations thinking to myself, I know that you have money, you know that you have money. Let's talk about your philanthropic priorities and negotiate about what might be a meaningful opportunity for you to give and at what sort of number would be comfortable for you to give as well, where you feel like the impact is worth your philanthropic dollars. And even that small mindset shift really sort of changed the way I engaged in conversations. It changed the way that I was thinking about my own professional development. It changed my confidence as well, where I was really approaching conversations, feeling a lot more comfortable hearing no because if in a conversation someone says no and you're selling something, it feels really bad. But if you're negotiating, you sort of reframe that no as, okay, now might not be the right time, but perhaps we can explore that conversation later on when it is the right time.
0: That's so powerful what you're saying because I feel like so many people hate fundraising because they're in that selling mindset or that transactional mindset. And for me, fundraising has always been about inviting people to be part of something, inviting them Mm -hmm. kind of under the tent, if you will, or into the breakthrough family when you and I were acquainted. So that's a really powerful thing. Do you feel like that is something that a lot of fundraisers that you know, have a common understanding of, or do you feel like that's an unusual understanding?
1: I think it depends a lot on the organization that you're working for, the size of your development or fundraising shop. Working at a university where we sort of already have a built-in pipeline of donors, I have sort of the privilege to think about it in that way. For a smaller nonprofit with a smaller budget and smaller team, I can see how the orientation might look different. So I think it depends. That's a good question that I haven't thought much about.
0: Okay, so I'm going to ask sort of the elephant in the room question, which is, in my career as a fundraiser, I don't often see a lot of folks of color, and I certainly don't see a lot of black men in fundraising. So I'm just wondering, can you speak to how it has been for you, in many cases, I imagine being the only black man in the room and being in a fundraising Mm -hmm. position?
1: Yeah. I certainly have been the only in many circumstances. And fortunately for me, there are additional Black men in the organization that I'm working for now. And I'm incredibly proud of him and the work that we've been able to do together and the partnership that we have. I think part of what has helped me in my journey is that I have been the only dot, 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 sort of fill in the blank for so many years at so many different places and stages in my life, I went to a small independent school in New York City. There were six black kids in a grade of 120. I went to Colgate, another predominantly white institution, went to Penn, another predominantly white institution. And along the way, I have a greater sense of peace with being the only. When you think about racial identity development sort of theory, everyone has a different timeline, and my timeline started very early because I was sort of thrust into these predominantly white spaces and had to come to terms with conflict, immersion, and all that other stuff very quickly and very fast, and I feel grateful that I've had those experiences, as troubling as they were at times, because I feel that greater sense of peace, I feel comfort, but I also feel a greater sense of self where I can walk into the room and proclaim my Blackness, but also Sort of navigate tricky situations when they do arrive without compromising my sense of self.
0: A lot of what you said resonates with me because similarly, even though I think there are probably more Asian female fundraisers that I've been aware of, it does feel like the only in many cases. And similarly, I went to predominantly white independent school in California and then predominantly white college and still there are microaggressions. So I have a million stories and I'm sure you do too about things that people say. Everything from like the offensive to the sort of innocuous but everything like oh I I just love Chinese food to like oh you're so confident for an Asian girl. (laughs) to remarks about their daughters-in-law. So I'm just wondering, can you share without like exposing the guilty, if you will, any sort of instances of microaggressions and how you've been able to deal with that?
1: Yeah, there are two stories that sort of come immediately to mind. One is where I was the microaggressor, and I think that'll be interesting for us to talk, sort of talk through, and one where I was microaggressed, if that's the right verb to use in this circumstance. So one of the first things that I think came up for me as a fundraiser i didn't really figure that people wouldn't assume that i was the person that they were meeting with i never had a picture in my email address and so when they heard marvin they probably had a very specific person in mind that they would be meeting with i'd be sitting in a coffee shop waiting for them i'd have a sloan folder on the table waiting for this one donor in particular he's like looking around the coffee shop which isn't actually that big And I I sort of do a little hand, he gives me the hand back and he's still looking. And I'm like, dude, like (laughs) I'm right here. And so I got up and I went to approach him and said, hi, I'm Marvin. And he said, oh, you're Marvin. And it may not have been anything big, but it reaffirmed for me that he was not expecting to see me. And I think that's exactly what microaggressions do. They make you feel a sense of self doubt, which I did not appreciate in that moment. And they make you sort of run through all these thoughts of, was he waiting for? Why didn't he think I was Marvin? Do I not look like a fundraiser and all these other things? And that was a moment where I really started to question whether the career was right for me, but you sort of put on your jacket and you keep forging forward. But the other story is I sort of microaggress someone else. I was meeting with a woman of color, a black woman who was a prospect of mine. And this does not happen very often. I have very few prospects of color in my portfolio. And I was talking to her about her philanthropy. She was telling me about her life. She's incredibly successful, cisgender woman, married with a husband, has kids, doing everything that she wants to do in life or seems to be doing everything she wants to do in life. During our meeting, when I was talking about engaging with the school, I said to her, I feel so badly for this, and it still sort of pains me to this day. I said, I imagine that it's difficult for you to be involved with being a mother. And she was like, let me stop you right there. My lack of involvement is not because of my mother, it's because I have all these other obligations that I need to take care of, and and MIT Sloan is not a priority for me at this moment. And that was a moment for me where I just like, it clicked that there are these moments where we, you know, even as a person of color, can also become aggressive towards other folks who have marginalized identities or underrepresented identities. And it's important that we keep ourselves in check as well.
0: We could have a whole other podcast about the mistakes that we've made. I mean, I've certainly stuck my foot in it more times than I care to recount. but. Let's talk a little bit about what you've learned, because I think what we've seen in the literature is that there is a real diversity issue in the fundraising pipeline, let's say. And we have lots of folks who start in the career, end up dropping out once they become kind of mid-level fundraisers. And I imagine similar to some of the experiences that you're talking about. And then if you happen to make it past the mid-level fundraising stage and you become a senior fundraiser, you see a little bit of a barbell. So talk to me a little bit about kind of the highs and lows that you've experienced and why you have maybe wondered if this career was for you and then it is actually for you.
1: The moments where I question myself the most are typically when people tell me, just wait, it's not your turn. Or just wait, you still have competencies to build. Or just wait, you'll eventually get there. I believe myself to be an incredibly competent person. I believe that I have skills that are worthy of promotion, that are worthy of opportunities. And when you're Frequently denied those opportunities, and I can only speak for myself, but when I am frequently denied those opportunities as a Black individual, I say to myself, I'm just going to take my skills somewhere else where they value me. And sometimes that means starting again from, I don't want to say the bottom, but starting again and sort of hitting that restart button. And so you go through the process and you work your way up, and then somebody else tells you to wait. And that is a real frustration that I feel because the luxury of waiting is not something that I subscribe to and it's not something that I believe in. When I believe that I am ready for something, I want to have a conversation about my readiness or how I can become more ready. I don't appreciate when people tell me just wait. And I think many Black folks experience similar conversations where people are asking us to be patient, not for the sake of wanting to build us or invest in our professional development. They're telling us to wait because They can tell us the way. They have the power to tell us the way and to hold back our careers.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably true of folks of color across all of the different fields, whether it's fundraising or engineering or what have you. Last question I have for you, Marvyn. Can you walk me through one of your biggest successes or biggest asks or things that you're most proud of in your career thus far?
1: I love where I work because MIT Sloan is a place full of nerds, and my accomplishment, I think, ties into this nerddom that everyone at MIT sort of wears on their chest. I had one donor who just came out of retirement, and she was just ready to get involved, ready to think about her philanthropy more intentionally. And mind you, this individual has never given for her basically entire career, 40 years of no giving when I met with her or so. And we had an initial coffee just talking about life, talking about her retirement. And she said one thing about wanting to start a company. And I latched on to that one thing because I am also an entrepreneur and I felt like we could really vibe in that respect. And we talked about the company she wanted to start. We talked about the strategy behind it. And I really started to engage with her as a human and as a person Uh with professional aspirations. You know, despite having officially retired, she wanted to do more and engaging with her in that sense created a real strong bond. And we went from zero dollars in giving to 10K in one year, which may not seem like a lot for her in particular. But I think to go on that journey with her and to become sort of a confidant in a certain way really special to me and she's in turn invested a lot of her time in me and helping me think about my own professional aspirations as I did for her last year when she was first starting her company and that was just a really meaningful moment remind me that this work is really about human relationships and not just about the dollars at the end of the day
0: yeah I totally agree with you I mean what I love about fundraising is it really is about relationships and being interested in people and so if if you can ask good questions and really engage with people on a one on one level, fundraising is a great career. In this period of racial equity reckoning, let's say, there's been a lot of conversations, particularly around fundraisers, about sources of philanthropy that we will and won't accept. And I know in particular, MIT got into a bit, uh, the Media Lab got into a bit of a hot water a couple of years ago with respect to anonymous donations from Jeffrey Epstein. So I'm wondering, how do you really think about the line between donations that you will and will not take? And I'm saying this, too, because I think a lot of young people that I've talked to seem very ideologically driven about like, oh, well, that's dirty money. And if you really think about it, like all money in some way is dirty money. And so I'm just wondering, how do you thread that needle for yourself? You could also pass (laughs) if that's too controversial. Yeah.
1: I'm gonna answer your question by not answering your question. I believe in a world where when philanthropy has accomplished what it is meant to accomplish, philanthropy would not exist. The distribution of wealth would just look very differently if we were all to think creatively and to be visionaries regarding our work in philanthropy. And so I am not the most fervent capitalist, which is why it's hard for me to answer that question. But I think it is important that we as fundraisers go back to our core and think of ourselves as teachers and educators. When I am engaging with donors, I have something to offer. And what I'm offering to them is creating a space for them to think critically about what they're giving, why they're giving it, And also to encourage them to think critically about how they actually accumulated all the wealth that they've accumulated and what that means in the greater context of the world. It is unfortunate that many fundraisers are not empowered to question donors. And not that I question all of my donors. I certainly don't because I don't always feel the need to. But I had a really interesting conversation with one in particular while he was talking about venture capital and private equity and wanting to amass so much wealth so that he can finally be philanthropic. And I said, well, let's engage in this conversation a little bit more and talk about why you want to accumulate so much wealth. Why is that so important to you so that you can be philanthropic 20 years down the road when there are things that you can do right now? There are different ways of thinking about making an impact in the world. And so if we see ourselves as educators, as teachers, who can guide folks through these critical conversations about wealth and philanthropy and conscious capitalism, I'll say, I think that will move mountains, to be quite honest. But that's a circuitous way of answering your question without answering your question.
0: Marvin, that was actually a beautifully put question, and I would answer it similarly, but probably more crudely, which is I think there are two things that, number one, I think the most badass thing that we can do, the most revolutionary thing we can do is to divert resources to causes that we hold dear, to causes that are important in the world. And to your point, I think it is incumbent upon us to help people who have a as wealth to understand the responsibility and where all of it has come from. So I don't think it's an either or, I think it's a both and. Maya has a question. Maya? Yeah. Yes. Hi Marvin, my name is Maya. I currently work for a nonprofit doing fund development and event coordination. And so, my question to you is: What resources, um, tools, or networks would you recommend to someone of color or just anyone looking to get into fundraising and special events, and hopefully eventually in like higher education as well?
1: Thanks for joining and for asking. There are communities out there, communities of color, of people who are in fundraising. For higher ed, we have CASE, and I'm a part of CASE District 1 in particular. We have a very active community of fundraisers and advancement professionals of color. I don't know where you're located, Maya, but finding your local CASE organization, they might have an affinity group within the district that you can join. There's WOC, Women of Color in Fundraising and Development, a relatively new group. There's the Rooted Collaborative, I believe, that is also a group for folks of color in fundraising. If you join your local AFP, Association for Fundraising Professionals, sometimes they also might have affinity groups. Oh, and Jeanette put out their AABO. They host awesome webinars, and their conference every year is fantastic, or the conferences that I've been to have always been fantastic. And AABO. Used to stand for African American Development Officers, but I think they're just using the acronym now. So lots of organizations out there, and definitely reach out to people who have chatted here. Reach out to me on LinkedIn, and we're all connected and we're all in network together.
0: Hey, Ryan, welcome.
1: Thank you so much. First, I'd love to say thank you, Marvin, for the transparency and honesty. That's incredible to hear. And thank you, Rhea, for bringing us together to just have this conversation. My questions. Sort of in line with what you asked earlier, I was just wondering how this current climate, both a pandemic that the US is still very much so struggling to deal with, as well as an uproar for policing and just the general treatment for Black lives, how has this current climate affected your day to day as a Black professional? And also, how has it changed your institution's fundraising initiatives, if at all? Ryan, and thanks for joining. It is good to see you virtually. Well, obviously, I would prefer to see you in person. So I can't speak for MIT. I can speak for myself. I have always been of the mindset that philanthropy is about sharing. And in my donor meeting, when a donor expresses a philanthropic interest that is outside of the scope of what we do at MIT or at MIT Sloan, I am happy to connect them with other nonprofit professionals who are in my role or similar roles when I know the nonprofit can value from the donor's interest. That is not something that many people do, but it's something that I think we should all do, especially during this time. I have one donor who's expressed an interest in giving uh, towards racial equity. And so instead of talking about MIT Sloan or ending the conversation, I had a conversation with her about other organizations in Greater Boston that might be of interest to her. And so I see my job as not just being knowledgeable about MIT Sloan and sharing our mission and vision and all that stuff, I see myself as an ambassador for other organizations out there who can use support from the network that I have access to as a university advancement professional. So that's one thing I would encourage folks to think about. And I think sort of the other thing, and this is more simple and basic, but I think important to remind ourselves is that every time that you wake up and do your job, especially, you know, you're in higher ed as well. When we do our jobs in higher ed as advancement professionals, every day that we show up is a political statement. And so I think it's just important to stick with it unless you feel unsafe or anything like that, but sticking with it and challenging systems within our professional work. And continuing to do that every day, that's a political statement in and of itself, and speaks volumes to you as a person.
0: Marvin, I have to have a follow-up question to that. I'm wondering, have you noticed any drop-off in donations to Sloan, as I know people right now are thinking about their philanthropic priorities, voter suppression, upcoming elections, racial equity, and so forth? Like, have you noticed any impact
1: We've noticed impact and we did not hit goal this year. None of us were really surprised by that. With the coming election, with racial injustice, with the pandemic, people's priorities have certainly changed and that's okay. It does make it challenging in a university setting when we don't wanna raise tuition. There are other sort of moving pieces that we have to consider, but it has impacted our bottom line quite a bit. As an individual worker within a larger unit, I feel okay with that because I know that if people are diverting their resources elsewhere, that is making an impact that is urgent. I feel okay with that personally. Obviously I can't speak for MIT, but I feel good.
0: (laughs) Great, thanks Marvin. One's coming in from Jimmy.
1: Hi, Ria Marvin. Thanks so much for presenting and sharing your experiences, insights, and thoughts. My question for both of you are, are either of you hopeful for the diversification of our profession? And if so, what are the trends that you're seeing? Or if not, what else can we be doing to diversify the field, especially as America and philanthropy
0: continues to change? Good question.
1: We can have maybe a little back and forth. One idea that I'd love to see come into fruition is that we start recruiting early. And I know that there are for folks working on this already, but I just wanna sort of amplify that financial services, they start recruiting in college, consulting, they start recruiting in college. Why can't we start doing that as well? Making a name for fundraising as a career pathway that people can really pursue. I think when people think nonprofits in college, they think low pay, they think long hours, and so dispelling some of those myths, although there are many nonprofits where it is low pay and long hours, but dispelling some of those myths and showing that there are nonprofits out there where you can get paid well and where you can work sort of reasonable hours and showing that you can be successful in a career in the nonprofit space and in fundraising in particular, starting, you know, in college would be great. But that's just one idea Maria. I'll pass it on to
0: I am cautiously optimistic that we can diversify this field. And I will say that I'm on a one woman mission to turn everybody into a fundraiser because I think it is such a fundamental skill. And let's just be really clear too, from the perspective of a sustainable lifestyle or building any kind of wealth the likelihood that you're going to be able to do it in fundraising is much higher than being in program and so forth. And so when I was running a nonprofit, I was always in the business of trying to turn everyone into a fundraiser, particularly the program people, because I thought that they had such an amazing story to tell about the work. The thing that I thought was the biggest obstacle is that a lot of people have very negative feelings about money and that somehow money is dirty or that engaging in the act of fundraising is somehow less noble than being on the front line of program. And so I think that where I see opportunity is for us to really shift folks of color's relationship to money, because I think historically in this country, people of color have not been generationally wealthy. We have, I think, a a very scarcity mindset relationship towards money and therefore without this healthy relationship with money or this psychological health around money it's very hard to be an effective fundraiser. I'm wondering Marvin would you agree with that? Is that just me opining in my little corner of the world?
1: You are not opining in your little corner of the world. I agree. Our relationship and by our folks of color our relationship with money is complicated and unpacking some of that mindset of and sort of figuring out why we believe or have a complicated relationships with money is really important. I think going to an independent school made that easier for me because I was confronted with money and lots of money real fast and early in my life but for folks who haven't had that exposure until college or later it can be a bit trickier and so spending some time thinking through that and doing that internal work, work is incredibly important.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I was actually reading just this morning, this book about money mindset, and the author was talking about three different places in which we get our subconscious, what he calls blueprint about money, it's verbal modeling and experiences. And so when you think about in your life growing up, what did you hear about money? What did your parents say about money? What sort of behaviors did they model about money? And then what sort of experiences did you have in your life that really triggered your thinking about money? For us to be really effective fundraisers and to have a healthy relationship with money and philanthropy and wealth, we have to unpack all of this subconscious baggage that we have that we don't even know that we have.
1: Yeah, we unpack it and we also remain skeptics of it. I think there's a lot of cognitive dissonance that we feel because we want to see a world that is more equitable, and yet we have to ask these incredibly wealthy people. And so that cognitive dissonance is something that you will have to grapple, or something that I grapple with constantly. And so for me, it's, yes, unpacking my relationship with money and being sort of comfortable with that cognitive dissonance, because I aspire to see a world where we don't have to think about philanthropy. I aspire to be in a world where we don't have to think about socioeconomic equity anymore, but this is the reality that we're also living in right now, and so I try and keep a healthy balance of both.
0: Thanks, Marvin. I'm wondering, Marvin, what advice might you give to your younger self or any folks who are thinking about becoming career fundraisers? So a little bit of a follow-up to what Maya originally asked.
1: One is to think about your sort of quantitative chops, taking classes in analytics or becoming not pro per se, but becoming more comfortable with things like Excel, SPSS, data R, whatever it is. I think that's important because in philanthropy, we work with lots of numbers, we work with, with lots of data, and feeling comfortable navigating those systems is important. And I will give a shout out to one of my previous employers who is in the room who helps me to become more comfortable with working with numbers and thinking about data and thinking about data infrastructure. It's such a help to think big picture with numbers, but also have the empathy to really relate with people as well. My second piece of advice I would give myself is to volunteer with organizations that have more constrained budgets that might need support from someone like me who is learning the craft in a more advanced shop with more resources. There's a lot of value that I've taken from volunteering. I used to be the director of fundraising for a small startup nonprofit where we were writing grants. We were building our individual giving program. We were just doing a lot of things from the very start. And that just gave me exposure to the lay of the land. Whereas my role at MIT, I was doing frontline work day one And I never got exposure to other parts of the fundraising world because I was hired for a very specific reason. So volunteer and share your time and energy with places that need your support, and you can learn a lot from them as well.
0: Marvin, this is something that you've been talking about and haven't said explicitly, but I also think this is probably why you're a very effective fundraiser, which is that you have a really clear abundance mindset, which is there's plenty out there, and we just need to share it and unlock it, but that you're not coming from a place of, I need to hoard these networks or this money for myself, which I think is probably why you're super successful. I'm going to call Marcus.
1: As an African-American male myself in the fundraising world, I think about how the student body continues to be more diverse compared to 20, 30 years ago. I'm interested to hear from you. What do you think we can do as fundraisers to... Begin to educate students that are currently in school now, especially thinking about those that are in particular student groups centered around minorities. What can we do to help teach them about philanthropy so that when they do become alumni, they understand the importance of it and appreciate it a lot more? That is a great question, and I feel like you answered your question, which is the best part. Philanthropy education is so important, and starting early when students are students can be such a powerful way to get them to ask the right types of questions, to think about their priorities, to connect with people who are philanthropic so that they understand what the philanthropic journey can look like. Yes, that's everything you just said and more. I think that's incredibly important. I will say that, and I believe you work at a university as well, something that I don't appreciate about university fundraising is a class gift campaign because I don't think it does students any good to think about their university as being the sole recipient of their philanthropy. And so the more sort of broad and general philanthropy conversation we can encourage the better, rather than just thinking about our institution as the recipient. And I'm not saying that's what you suggested, but I'm just sort of talking out loud here.
0: Great. We've got a question coming in from Molly. This is a juicy one. Are you ready? Hey, Molly. Hi. Hi, thank you all for this. So fundraising, quote unquote, best practices have been developed based on the assumption that your prospect is an older white man. So you mentioned at the beginning of this session that you went through Plus Delta training and I'm sure MIT offers their own professional development programs to frontline fundraisers. So not trying to get you to throw either of them under the bus, but I'm just curious where you've noticed bias in the ways you're being coached on how to approach prospects and what advice do you have about identifying bias in the donor relationship cycle?
1: That is a good question. There's bias throughout the entire process. There's bias in every single PD that I've attended and been a part of. I don't know that I will have an answer to your question in the time that we have left, to be honest. As an individual, I feel that I've been able to repurpose a lot of what I've learned and make it work for me. It is not a perfect science. I also think about it through the lens of a teacher. When I approach students in my classroom, I always tell them to come with a curiosity mindset, and that's what I think the entire donor engagement process is about, coming in with a curiosity mindset. I am disappointed by my response to your question, Molly, but I would like to revisit this question at some other
0: point yeah it's a it's a complicated question for sure and again Molly I feel like I have an incomplete answer but for me I've always approached fundraising to the lens of having people share who they are and what they care about and I don't think that that's necessarily consciously biased in any way but I do really believe that the best fundraising is about centering the donor and their story and their needs and their interests and manifesting it in the work that you do. But again, I think it's it's an unsatisfying answer. So I'll have to think about it a bit more.
1: I do want to add one other thing, Molly. And again, sort of talking out loud, this is a conversation. We all have biases, right? And so I think part of what we should challenge with the process, absolutely, as you may be suggesting, part of our work, and this is probably the best part of the work, is how do we as an individual fundraiser think about challenging our own biases by just taking a step back and being critics of ourselves? So like the plus delta process that they teach us, there are biases in there, but as an individual fundraiser, I have the capacity to sort of think through those biases on my own and sort of reflect and refine based upon new learnings that I have.
0: It's an important question to ask, and thank you, Molly, for bringing it up. One more question, and our question is coming in from Vincent. Hey, Vincent.
1: Hello, how are you? My question is about the art of storytelling. It's extremely important in fundraising. So what would be some advice that you would provide people who are just getting into fundraising about really owning in on that skill and mastering that craft of storytelling so you can better relate with the donor.
0: So important.
1: Yeah. I think storytelling begins with reading and taking in a lot of stories yourself. I feel very inspired by Pixar. And so I spend a lot of time reading about Pixar, watching Pixar movies, because that's where I pick up a lot of my storytelling tips and tricks. Another thing that I think about is embedding yourself within the organization that you work for Fortunately for me, I worked in programs at MIT before I switched over to fundraising. So the story that I tell is is my own story of helping students develop their companies, which is what I used to do prior to fundraising. And sort of leveraging the donors that you meet and the stories that they share. I tell donors each other's stories all the time because I think that's incredibly powerful for them to be talking to each other, but using me as a vessel for that conversation. So those are some things I think about. But Rhea. Do you have anything
0: to add? Yeah, I do. So I actually think Pixar is great. Uh, Creativity Inc. is a fantastic book. I really recommend it. If you haven't read it, Ed Catmull, who is uh, one of the founders of Pixar, has a lot to say about storytelling. The other resource I would recommend is I really enjoy Story Brand by Donald Miller, and I can put it in the chat. And essentially, he presents the hero's journey. So the arc of the story around everything we've seen like Star Wars is just Luke Skywalker's just hanging out on his farm and all of a sudden you know he's called to adventure and the Obi-Wan Kenobi and the Yodas are his guide for him to reach his heights of greatness but first there's like a valley of disappointment that he has to go through and so if you think about the hero's journey it's a very prototypical story and I think the mistake that a lot of fundraisers make is that they try to make themselves or their organization the heroes of the story. And in fact, you want to make your donors the hero of the story. So you are always the guide in this. You are the Obi-Wan. You are the Yoda. You are the Hey Mitch, if you're a Hunger Games fan. And your donor is always the story because everyone is the hero of their own story. Everyone is the star of their own movie. And I talk about this a lot, which is one of the great things that Danny Meyer who's a famous restaurateur here in New York has always said is everyone is walking around with an imaginary sign on their neck that says make me feel special and so as we think about storytelling we tell the story of our organization that is enriched by the participation of our hero i.e the donor And the last thing I'll just add, Vincent, is it takes a lot of practice. So once you've really honed your story, practice it a lot because it's hard to have a concise, compelling, evocative story that you can tell in a very short amount of time.
1: And one quick addition to that is practice your story and also solicit feedback from people. It's okay to ask a donor at the end of the conversation what resonated with you from what I shared today. And that sort of instant formative assessment. Formative assessment is a teaching thing that we talk about, but feedback loop, we'll say, can really help you to refine your story and think about, okay, if this resonated with donors, maybe I should get rid of this and add in this instead and help you to really shape it so that people feel connected. Oh,
0: last thing I will share is Marshall Gantz, who is a professor at Harvard, has what he calls public narrative, which is the story of self, the story of us, and the story of now. It's available for free online. I really recommend it. And it is a way to invite a conversation with your funder and to really engage on a very personal level. So those are my recommendations. So in our last minutes together, Marvin, any last thoughts that you can share with folks on the call? I mean, this has been such a rich conversation. and I really thank you for sharing so openly and generously with all of your thoughts and experiences.
1: I guess my final thought would be to stay connected. There are communities of professionals of color who are in fundraising and I encourage you to join them and get connected with them and engage with them because the work that we're doing is very important. Philanthropy is transformative, but it won't be transformative until the right people are in the room, until the right people are sitting at the table and hopefully sitting at the head of the table. And so persist on Forge Forward and do this work. It's hard, but it's important and such a pleasure and honor to be in conversation with all of you today.
0: Thank you so much, Marvin. And thank you to everyone for joining. Feel free to connect with myself or Marvin on LinkedIn. Also, feel free to subscribe to the newsletter where you will get updates on the podcasts every week, along with upcoming webinars. So we have one coming up next week, which is about models of fundraising outside of traditional philanthropy. And in the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week, Marvin. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. Take care, everyone. Thank you so much.